Hello all, this is Chad from The Premise. As you may or may not know, we are in the middle of summer festival days here at the San Diego Writers Festival. What that means is that, uh, yeah, we're a little busy. So uh, check us out at sandiegowritersfestival.com for all the latest info and live videos happening on Facebook. Also, uh, we don't have a regularly recorded episode, so this one is going to be a repeat of last year's Writers' Festival, with Marnie Freeman interviewing Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black. I hope you enjoy. We've been working on getting Piper here for the last year. I had so many things to say to her, and then I saw her this morning, and I was like, hey, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> Suddenly, completely tongue-tied, but um, it is a huge honor, because the spirit with which you wrote the book is the spirit with which we wanted to hold the festival. Uh, one of the things that we, um, found is that when people listen to each other's stories, uh, they become family. So my first question is, when reading your book, I was really struck by your interaction with Gisela, who helped you to see God and faith in a new way. Um, you spoke of in a way that was, how can I give? And what I wanted to know was, how did this interaction with her change the way that you saw faith? Hmm, interesting question. Have you been asked that one? I don't think so, not specifically about Isela. Um, Isela was the driver of the, the work truck. You know, it was a, a Cracker Box school bus, but you know, that was her job as she drove that. Um, she would drive people to and from their jobs, those of us who worked in construction services. So, and she was a very kind person. Um, yeah, that sort of, an interesting thing in context. Mm. You know, one of the few rights that prisoners can claim tends to be around religion and worship. Mm. So, you know, incarcerated people lose most of their rights of citizenship and many other rights we might take for granted, like free speech. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the rights that's sort of easier for people to protect or enforce is rights around the practice of religion. So you find that prisons can be hotbeds of religion. Mm. <laughs> um, and so some of that discussion of Isela in the book is in comparison with a lot of other mm. religiosity that was going on in the prison. I myself am not a particularly religious person, but um, the thing that was really striking about that conversation with Isela was that it was focused on faith mm. as opposed to religion. And, you know, religion serves a really important purpose in prison in terms of helping form community in a place which, you know, there are a lot of cross-cutting currents that, that destroy community mm. and destroy our sense of trust for one another or our sense of safety with one another. So that's one of the interesting purposes of like actual religious practice, but that's quite distinct from faith, mm -hmm. that question of faith. And that conversation with Isela was really the first conversation I'd had some, with someone in prison about faith as opposed to religion, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it was eye-opening for me. Um, it tempered some of my, you know, the question of like, how judgmental are we mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, of one another, of the world? 
Um, it's interesting, you know, I have a son, as do you. He's a little younger than yours. I mean, one of the things we try to teach children is to have judgment, right? To have good judgment. But that question of like, how do we, how do we use judgment in a way that is affirmative as opposed to damaging? Obviously, that comes into play, too, when you start to think about the criminal justice system and those who are judged and who, those who do the judging. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that conversation to be a good of like a time in prison when I checked myself mm. around judgments that I might have. It seemed like a lot of the book was that experience, mm-hmm. was having an assumption mm-hmm. and then having an experience where you, I mean, you did something beautifully that we call reflection and takeaway. Mm-hmm. Did you know that you were doing reflection and takeaway or was it just natural for you to process your experience and, and communicate it? Mm-hmm. You mean during the writing or during the actual experience? Because I think for writing. memoir writer, for writers and particularly for memoir writers, that question of you know, we in in my writing class, we talk about it as the the double perspective of memoir, right. the the bringing the reader into the actual moment, the action, mm-hmm. and whatever emotions and ideas were going through your head or any other character's heads at the moment, and then that that distance that you have with time. Yeah, the, to, we would call it songs, uh-huh. the song of innocence and the song of experience. Oh, interesting. That's a good way. We we have like. Um, 3D glasses, that's our metaphor for the the double perspective of memoir. (laughs) Um, So looking back, um, did you have realizations in the moment, or do you think that it's mostly when you got out and you were reflecting on it that you had those realizations? I mean, I think definitely both. I mean, I think some of the things that I had reflections on in the moment during the term of incarceration were like, those onion layers where you're like, whoa, that's what's really going on. Oh, I had never thought about that before. Oh, um, that's attached to the action. And then the reflection is where we attach meaning to things, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So, um, yeah, it's one of the most important parts. I mean, it's all. that's one of the reasons we write also mm-hmm. is because we crave the opportunity to have those moments of reflection. And it's, it's hard to have those done. in our day-to-day life. And that's one of the reasons, we, even if you're not a writer, you're, that we all, that human beings instinctively tell stories. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's such an important part of, our, of literally who we are as creatures. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of our memoir students here. So oh, anybody yeah. shout out to memoir students? Shout out to the memoirists. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to geek out for a second on another memoir question, and then I'll go back to other ones. But one thing that you do so beautifully is you have introduced so many characters. And Mm. usually that's kind of like a no-no. Like, if you're not going to really get to know someone, we don't stay with it. But yours was a process of meeting and then moving on. And, And I thought one of the things you did so beautifully was you let us know that person right away and care about them mm. right away. I don't know if you know this, but you, you give a tiny bit of description and then a tiny bit of dialogue so that we knew them instantly. Mm-hmm. Is, did you know you were doing that? I don't know if I knew, I don't know if I, if I was like, okay, analytically, this is how I'm going to do, but one of, so in class, 
what I always say to my students, I'm like, what story do you want to tell? So we have writing prompts, and those sort of literally prompt people to choose a story that they're interested in working on. We, I always talk about the writing prompts as like, it's just the diving board that gets you into the pool, right? right? So there's the story that, uh, you know, the facts of the case, we sort of sometimes call it in class. There's like whatever, like, you know, it's memoir, so you're telling the truth. So there's the facts of the case, the action of the story, whatever, you know, the immutable, unmovable facts, mm -hmm. right? And then um, there's, I, I say to my students that every story poses its own challenge to the writer, mm. right? Sometimes a story might be a really distant memory. And we're not that sure about all of the facts or all of the details that inform the story. So the question of like, where does creative license come in mm -hmm. on a story like that? Um, the question of where does, um, yeah, sort of uh, using imagination as opposed to clinging to fact. But I guess my question is, yeah. you made the character, the, you, and I heard in your speaking earlier, you brought the characters to life, mm -hmm. and that was one of your goals, yeah. to help people to care about the faceless people that they might not otherwise care about. Mm -hmm. How did you learn how to do that? Is it just? Boy, I don't know if I learned how to do it, but definitely one of the inherent challenges for me as a writer telling this particular story is the very fact that prison is incredibly crowded, it is packed, all of our prisons and jails are pretty much over capacity. Like it's an experience which is about being in like this mass of humanity in incredibly close quarters. Mm -hmm. And literally there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people and you might interact with, you know, 25 or 50 people, which, you know, some people of us, some of us have lives that are just like that now, but many of us, you know, the daily world is a little smaller. Yeah. And so to truthfully reflect that experience, you had to include a lot of characters, yeah. right? It was necessary mm. in order to, you know, bring the reader into the truth of that experience. So, you know, I think there are a lot of very quick characterizations, mm -hmm. as you've said. Yeah. And sometimes people sort of pop up and they disappear and then maybe they pop up again. They're not necessarily like, foreground characters, mm -hmm. you, know, foregr you know, there's that question of like foreground characters and background characters and what is the, the purpose of each in a story and, and how do they serve the story. Um, this is one of the things that I work on with my students the most in this question of like, well, how do you do characterization? How do you bring a person to life? Yes. And there's so obviously, so, you know, we've got physical description. We talk, you know, you know, sort of, I'm always like, don't be lazy, you know, like, I, I, we, in the men's class particularly, I have a, something that I come back to frequently, which is I go and I write five foot three on the board and then I cross it off. I'm like, do not write a female character for me and tell me she is five foot three as the sole character, as the, like your only yeah. way of, and, and if her height has absolutely nothing to do with the story, like what is that about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so no five foot three. Um, so, but physical description. Mm -hmm. um, uh, social description, like what is one character's relationship to all the other people that are that are at work, and that was really important yeah. in my book, yeah. right? Yeah. So that question of relationship, mm -hmm. like what relationship does that character have to me as a memoirist or to any of the other people that are that are present? Um, uh, character, literally, like is this person? Uh, where is this person in relationship to what the protagonist wants? If you're dealing with a protagonist story. 
Are they going to help? Are they going to stand in the way? Are they an antagonist? Are they, mm. you know, a friend? Is it unclear? Like, that's a really important part of characterization. And then that question of sort of personality, which mm -hmm. I think is distinct from character, mm -hmm. right? The character is, uh, you know, when I, say, when I phrase that that way, that's really about the judgment of, you know, the perspective of the story, yeah. right? Yeah. As opposed to the personality of that character, you know, some people are sleepy and some people are energetic and some people are, you know, abrasive and, you know, we all have aspects of personality. So different, you know, I would say that for all these characters, and there are many of them in this particular story, and there are many of them in the current story that I'm working on as well, you know, you sort of pull in the thing that is most singular ah. and the thing that is most nice. distilled about nice. like, you know, your perspective as the writer on who that person is or was. Awesome. Right. We also um, went to, out to Facebook and asked people to, you know, what it, do you want to ask Piper? And we got some really interesting questions. Oh, One of them was about assumptions. Actually, a number of people wrote about assumptions mm -hmm. that you walk into a place or a situation and you have assumptions of what you would find, which is something that you talk about that you thought you might find violence, mm -hmm. you know, but really what you found um, was community. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how that changed the way you um, looked at life, really. I mean, I am a, definitely a glass half full person, and you know that would probably be, you know, concretely reflected by the fact that I've had a fortunate life, that I was raised in a in safety as a child, mm -hmm. that I was able to go to good public schools. So, you know, that sort of optimism is is grounded in my lived experience, which is not the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, the, I mean, but everyone is walking through the world with assumptions, for yes, sure. Yes. And uh, that question, you know, to come back to that question of sort of protagonist and memoir writing, the expectation is always that the protagonist is going to change. Right. And one of the most important things or ways that you can show that or that you can attack that is by looking at the assumptions that that person is carrying into the, into the setting you create for them. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great answer. What is one question that no one has asked you but that you wish they would about your experience? <laughs> Is there anything you wished you'd been asked? I've been asked a lot of questions. I might have to come back to this one. Okay, put a pin in that one. Uh -huh. Okay. So here's another one. This is another Facebook question. So you said you wrote the book because when you got out of prison, so many people were intrigued by your experience mm -hmm. and wanted to hear about every detail. Why do you think we're fascinated by prison? What do you think prison stories? What do you think is, that's about? Yeah. I think that um, on a very fundamental level, prisons and jails and the world of prisons and jails is very intentionally hidden away from the public view. And so it's very natural for human beings to be curious about the things that are intentionally hidden from them. Now, mm. you know, some communities have been devastated by mass incarceration, right? There is this expression called million dollar blocks meaning that geographically there are places in this country where the you know millions of taxpayer dollars are spent on policing incarceration you know pr probation or parole you know literally it's this pouring of public resources into 
you know, this profoundly negative investment. So if you go to some communities, then the world of prisons and jails is a lot less mysterious because there are communities that are very over, you know, that are overly and disproportionately yeah. impacted by mass incarceration. So mm. you may find many, many people who have been visiting people in prison for their entire lives, yeah. or people who have multiple family members who have been in the system mm -hmm. at some time. That was not a reflection of my own experience, um, though it was really interesting to me that you know when you start to have these conversations people who might otherwise really go to great lengths to hide some of those realities about mm. their own experience or their family's experience are a little more inclined to come forward and to talk. Mm. And I think that's one of the great um, values of memoir mm. is that you know some memoirs are sort of sunny and happy, but a lot of, I mean, inherently, story is about conflict, yeah. and a lot of memoirs are about tough stuff. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity for readers to not feel alone if they have a, a parallel experience is really important. And the opportunity for you know, multiple people to have a, an inroad to that experience and an opportunity to ha be in conversation and dialogue with mm -hmm. people in the community more broadly is one of the great values of memoir. So we talk a lot about shame that pops up. Yeah. You know, sometimes in memoir class, it's the first time someone's revealing sure. something very big. Mm -hmm. um, do you, and sometimes the topic comes up around wanting to have a um, not use to not use your own name. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you ever considered doing? Not using my own name? Yeah. No. I mean, I. My own experience was really informed very much by that crazy delay between you know being 22 years old yeah. and committing the crime and yeah. being 34 years old and sent to prison. Right. By the time, and I spent you know six years on pretrial, so it was a whole messy thing that was kept really quiet for a while, but. We made a decision to sort of be forthright with people before I went to prison about the fact that this was happening. Mm. And that was easier for me in many ways. That wasn't easy for me, but like when I think about the judgments that were placed upon some of the women that I knew, mm -hmm. the immediacy of their crime had a lot to do with that. So in my case, many people were like, what, what? But they were also like, wow, that's something that happened more than a decade ago. I know you to be a really different person mm. now. Mm. So this is, you know, you know, this is just a fact of the story. Mm -hmm. um, As a teacher, do you find that people struggle with, I'm afraid to share this, or I'm afraid to um, truly reveal the full truth? Yes, absolutely. We have lots and lots of discussions about this in class in terms of, other people's lives and other people's stories, or you know, truth telling, um, throwing people under the bus, or you know, snatching, what are your snatching them out that, from under the wheels of the bus. Full truth, or what? What's your thinking on that? About you know, I always encourage people in class. You know, so my classes again are taking place in a prison, mm -hmm. right? My students are incarcerated. Um, Prisons are by definition design not safe places, not places where vulnerability is encouraged or rewarded in any way. And in fact, vulnerability can really catch you, you know, can attract really unwanted attention in mm -hmm. a prison. 
So the challenge of creating an environment in class where people can really bring you know, their, all of their talent to bear against stories that they want to tell, a huge, the, in my class, and I think in probably in any memoir class, the huge important thing is the choice. Like that's that question, you know, we try to do absolutely nothing in class that is coercive because my students have enough coercion right. in their life. Right. So that question of like, what stories do you want to tell? That said, they, they, it varies person by person, but they tend to gravitate towards, towards difficult stories eventually. And you know, so I have a dear friend named Joe Loya, who I did not know until I was incarcerated, and I began to get letters from this friend of a friend who started sending me good books and also started writing me, and it turned out he had served um, probably about 10 years total in prison, but he had served a seven or eight year federal prison sentence for robbing banks. He had robbed like 22 banks. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, and he, he did some state time as well. And then he wrote this amazing book called The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell, which I strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in memoir and certainly who's interested in the subgenre of sort of prison memoirs. It's amazing. It's a wonderful book. So he started writing me, you know, as a stranger while I was incarcerated, and then we didn't get a chance to meet until after I was released, but he has been like one of my biggest cheerleaders and supporters, and he has come and visited my class. My students love his book, you know, both the men and the women. Mm -hmm. It's always interesting to see how the classes respond to different texts in different ways, but everybody loves that book. Joe is like, what's the story you don't want to tell? Right. And he's like, that's your story. <laughs> that's the one story you absolutely don't want to tell. That's your story. That's a little facile, you know. It is really hard to write about some of this subject matter. Yeah, yeah. I have been blown away by what my students have been willing to do again in a setting which is not, you know, guaranteed to reward vulnerability. Though we try to reward vulnerability in class mm -hmm. with wild applause and lots mm -hmm. of love. But you know, uh, students in both the men's and the women's class have written about childhood sexual assault. They have written about, you know, abandonment by parents and parental substance use disorder and, you know, you name it. Um, the number one subject matter of stories, if you add up the aggregate from my classes, is people's mothers. Yes, I know. I know. I, as a mother, I think about that know, all the time. What is my son so going to write about? I yeah. know. <laughs> I know, moms. Yeah. Um, Another question that I have is you've now traveled around. It's been some time. Your book is out there. The TV show is out there representing. And you've gone out and talked to a lot of America and Americans. I've been to 48 states of Holy this great nation. Crap. Yeah. That's amazing. It's wild. I didn't even know that was that much. Uh, Just got Arkansas and Nebraska. <laughs> What do you, what do you, what have you learned? It's almost like you went on a listening tour and a speaking tour, you know, mm -hmm. like politicians do. What, do. what is your takeaway from just hearing, because even today people were, you know, I want to tell you my story, I want you to hear this. Mm -hmm. what, are your, what, do, what have you learned from just listening to Americans across the country? I mean, I've learned that there are these great reserves of unrecognized and unresolved trauma for many, many individual people and for some communities that disproportionately um, contend with trauma and have fewer resources with, you know, to deal with it. 
um, and that that you know harms us all. Mm. Um, but that again, you know, back to like what is the service that a memoir can you know why do we do why, why is it such a particular genre in the first place? You know that that I don't care what the subject of your memoir is. I feel like people respond to the bravery of that self-revelation yes. and the willingness of a writer to be vulnerable. And if it's subject matter that connects to their own lives, that is an almost irresistible pull mm -hmm. and also a permission to talk about their own situation and their own story, mm -hmm. even if they never sit down and write it or like paint to paint. I mean, you know, I always say, you know, make, make whatever creative work that, you know, works for you, but, you know, get these things out one way or another. You mentioned that you were working on something else. Yeah, well, so we will publish a collection of the best of my students' writing, which I'm very excited wow. about. And I am at work on, you know, on a book of my own about sort of the classes and the way they work and a particular interest in the men's facility because um, some of the unique challenges mm -hmm. of sometimes very traditional conceptions about masculinity, mm -hmm. you know, uh, are present in the men's stories. And then of course, as, as I spoke about earlier this morning, you know, no institution more, you know, hierarchical, dominance-oriented, violence-oriented, patriarchal than a prison. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's um, well worth it to think about those things. Do you think the, the men's prison run the same as the women's prisons where people form social groups like there's a mom and a pop and a sisters or there, there's that people kind of sort of gather it's not no a, I really I mean again I'm not I haven't been incarcerated in a men's prison but now that I've spent you know a lot of time in one for over four years I don't think those family units really mm. form I think men form close bonds with one another mm. but I mean in the women's facilities that's an, that's a literal social structure and it, there's a book called uh, by a sociologist named Barbara Owen called In the Mix which is you know a fairly definitive socio you know social depiction of of women's prisons and she talks about that sort of recreation of family unit that women do men do not do that i think men, some men do look for father figures while they're incarcerated but you know i can't overstate what a powerful factor you know fear is mm. um, you know and and challenges around trust. I mean, it's one of the reasons that gangs are, I mean, so you don't right. really, you don't see very much gang activity in a women's prison at all. Um, I think one of the things that people don't acknowledge, I mean, you know, gangs are highly problematic in lots of ways, but they do afford a social structure and a measure of trust um, that is important to incarcerated men. Um, I have a number of men who, you know, have gang involvement as part of their personal history, whether that's the, the distant past or the more recent situation. Um, and some of their stories about that have really deepened my understanding of what place that holds in their life. Mm. Yeah, the choices that they maybe could or couldn't make. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that people have a misconception after reading the book, um, or does everyone feel like they know you or that they know what they think they know you because they've seen Piper Chapman. Is there a sense of, <laughs> I'm sure that one's been asked, but I really wanted to know. <laughs> um, well, people who read the book know me 
much have a much closer approximation to that. Yeah. Though of course the book was published, you know, the book was completed in 2009. And it was published in 2010. Mm -hmm. So you know that's you know I wrote that ten, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. So I I have changed obviously in the course of a decade. So it's not that I'm exactly the same as I was then. Um, yes, I would definitely say that the 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 cognitive dissonance be between you know the fictional character and the show and you know people ask me about that character all the time and I'm like look it's a creation of Genji's writing mm -hmm. and Taylor's acting and that's that's what creates that character that's not I'm not I don't watch the show and be like oh that's me <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the show sometimes I watch I'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever feel funny being the spokesman, in a way, for opening up the dialogue that you know a lot of people wish they could have had? You know, you were able to to have this dialogue that maybe wasn't happening before. Has that ever been uncomfortable? I mean, I think the thing that's uncomfortable about that is that that is largely because of race, yeah. right? So. You know, you could easily find a woman with a very similar story to yeah. my, you know, Kemba Smith, you know, who is pretty well known because she received such an onerous sentence and was pardoned, I think, by George W. Bush. Um, but her, literally, the facts of her story in terms of like her involvement in crime and her conviction are very similar to mine and mm -hmm. the the facts of her sort of personal background. But she's African American, mm -hmm. and I. I am white, so I think the discomfort I feel is the fact that a huge factor uh, in terms of the quote-unquote accessibility of the story has to do with race. Mm. I knew that when I wrote the book, though. I yeah. mean, that was that was not that was part of the value I thought, because quite frankly, communities of color have been talking about mm -hmm. these issues for a long time because they are so disproportionately affected by them. And so it's necessary for a hell of a lot more white people to be talking about and debating these issues as well. So that question of who do we recognize as protagonists mm -hmm. and whose stories are we interested in and do we invest ourselves in mm -hmm. is something that every sort of reader and every person needs to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. One thing that makes me really happy, so when I was first released from prison, there were definitely some, there were a handful of formerly incarcerated women who had been doing good work in the community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in New York, there's a wonderful woman named Vivian Nixon who runs the College and Community Fellowship, which creates pathways towards higher ed for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated woman, women. There's a, an amazing woman named Tina Reynolds who you know, had her baby while she was incarcerated and has been instrumental in trying to uh, get rid of shackling of women oh, in labor God. and those kinds of things. So there were definitely these role models, you know, Susan Burton here in Southern California, who, you know, started a new way of life in LA. Mm -hmm. Inspirational stories, um, inspirational women. There are a handful of them. What makes me really happy now, all these years later after I, you know, I was released in 2005, is that there's far more people out there on the national stage, talking, making art, writing. Where are so, we going? Yeah, that, you know, you, you having having seen what's out there, and I know you went and spoke to the Senate. Is that where you? I have testified to the Senate twice. Um, I uh, spoke at the Obama White House, um, <laughs> and uh, and the Obama White House did a lot of work to um, convene to convene more people to talk about these issues and also to um, 
to make sure that formerly incarcerated people were very central to those conversations. I remember when I was first you know, invited to go to the White House and to talk and to participate in some of those forums, you know, at that point, you know, they would not, up until that point, a person who had a felony conviction would not have been permitted into the White House. Mm. And so they made like a policy change wow. to allow, you know, not just me, but lots of other wow. formerly incarcerated people to start to come in. And sort of this recognition that people who have been in the system deserve a place in the community and deserve a central place in the community is, I think, a paradigm shift. And so, is that happening everywhere equally? That's what I'm wondering. Is that happening for every person equally? Not necessarily. If you are a, particularly a man of color, I think you know there are, uh, even if you've never been incarcerated, there are a whole set of barriers to full participation in the community tethered to our ideas and assumptions about race mm -hmm. and gender. But, um, and, and I think that's true for women of color too, uh, the, the gender lens um, changes things mm -hmm. sometimes, um, but you know, hopefully we're making progress. Certainly, there are more voices, you know, from people who, like me, have been incarcerated or have been directly impacted by the system. And frankly, we need like a huge mosaic of voices because it's a vast carceral state. And you know, my experience in the federal system is going to be radically different than someone who has been incarcerated in a in a city or a county jail, mm -hmm. um, which is vastly different than someone who served, you know, a life, you know, who was, you know, exonerated from death row, for example. And those stories are incredibly important and compelling. And there are just far, there are a lot of. I mean, I think the the genre of prison memoir is one that is long-standing, but there is a much broader and richer vein of those stories that are now available and recognized. So we have this community here. Mm -hmm. And I, today, one of the things I want to pledge is that I want to start something, uh, several things. I'm someone who likes to start things. So um, I want to know from you what we can do. Um, I, you know, I, I worked as a, a therapist for um, former foster uh, youth that were transitioning, and I had that same experience of I had these assumptions and then meeting them. Um, I wanted to adopt them all, even though they were, you know, over 18. Um, I'm wondering, like, you know, if you could give us all a task or a a charge or what's one thing that we can all take away from today and do? Mm -hmm. What would that be? I mean, I think the most important thing, so Brian Stevenson, has anyone here read Just Mercy, his amazing book? Yeah. So Brian Stevenson is probably the, the premier, the most well-recognized current civil rights lawyer. I mean, Sherilyn Eiffel is pretty badass too um, as a civil rights lawyer. Um, but Brian Stevenson is really remarkable. He has written this incredible memoir called Just Mercy. You know, Brian does his work out of Montgomery, Alabama, and represents people who are on death row or people who have been sentenced to die when they were, I mean, sentenced to die in prison when they were children. So those juvenile life without parole sentences. And he's argued uh, successfully a number of times before the Supreme Court around those, that type of sentencing. And, um, and he, I mean, He's, he's pretty busy. Uh, he founded this incredible uh, memorial, which was opened last April in Montgomery, Alabama. It is the Memorial for Peace and Justice, and it commemorates the more than 4,000 people um, who lost their life to lynching during mm -hmm. 
during oh, yes. mainly during the 20th century, um, but also in the 19th century as well. Um, which, if you've never been to Montgomery, Alabama, I encourage you go. It is a very overwhelming but really important place when we think about sort of harsh punishment mm -hmm. and our tolerance of violence within this country. I think when you go and you visit a place like that, you start to understand how deeply entwined you know, racialized violence and all kinds of violence are within our history and what we have to really unpack and, and repair and restore in order to uh, be a more peaceful, safe place. So, but Brian says that we need to get proximate to people. What does that mean? And what that means is not looking at these issues or questions from a remove, right? Like, oh, those people, I, you know, like that sort of idea or impulse around charity, okay. as opposed to like recognizing our similarity in the way, you know, certainly it's always easy to carve out the ways that we're different but recognizing the ways in which our humanity is closely entwined and uh, finding ways to not only be, I mean, proximate is a funny word, but proximity is where you start to tear down some of those, those inequalities, mm -hmm. which are really baked into a lot of the systems that we navigate ourselves. And so when you get proximate to somebody, all of a sudden you really start to, A, comprehend you know, what their life is like on a more accurate, realistic way, rather than making assumptions about them. But also, you know, the closer our bonds are to one another, the more connected we are to one another, the more intolerable those inequalities become, and the more we're likely we are to be activated to do something, and also to be better informed about what we should do, mm -hmm. right? So it's really hard to be like, oh, what should I do at some great remove? It's much easier to have a sense of what could or should or must I do when you have made yourself proximate and that's so that so that's really about some ways to do making that? a choice in your own community about you know where do I see inequality in my community and where can I go and you know be in proximity with somebody who perhaps does not have everything they need and I can help figure out you know how that could change so it's really sort of uh, going into your own community, seeing what's going on, and yeah. taking the small actions. It's mentoring a kid who is either at risk of, of exiting the school system or is aging out of foster care. It's going down to the homeless shelter and like giving your time, not just you know necessarily doing whatever's needed there, but certainly like truth, truly like being in community with with those, the people who are there who okay. need those things. You know, it's uh, volunteering at a domestic violence shelter and, you know, thinking about how we can help people through really terrible times of trauma to get to a better and more stable place. You know, it's, it is that proximity. And what we're gonna do after this talk is we're gonna sit down and, and really think these things through and have some options. Because I, when I was talking to people about talking to you, people were saying to me, there's a sense of hopelessness. A uh, sense of I can't. What what can I do? What you know? What action can I take? I hear what's going on. I'm 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 empathetic, but I don't know the steps. And so hearing what you're saying about proximity, I just want to let you know that we'll, we're going to sit down with a team and do some action steps. So that will be on our website. And if you don't know Writers Inc., then. Come look them up. Come get to know them. I mean, yeah. here's what I would tell you after teaching, you know, 
basically narrative, you know, creative nonfiction or memoir writing for four years. So my students come in and we require a GED of them and we require them to write a, a story you know, and submit it. So they have to do a writing submission. And so the story, the prompt is always the same, write a story about an unusual morning in your life. So mm -hmm. they can pick anything. It can be an unusual morning from their childhood, it can be last week, it can be whatever they want. Um, and you know, we look for several things. We're like, is it actually a story? Like, did they follow the assignment? <laughs> like, is it a story? We look for language skills, like how much vocabulary do they exhibit, et cetera. We look for a whole bunch of different things. We compose the class. You know, some students are stronger and come in with more language skills. Some people are less. But we know that everybody in the class will have a bunch of interesting stories, almost by definition, because they're in prison, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, what we find is that when they get those tools, you know, when, they, when we teach them the analytical skills around narrative structure, and we talk about pacing, and we talk about characterization, and we talk about, you know, our, ex our expression for, um, wrestling around with conflict and resolution is putting the octopus to bed. And I actually have a new tattoo on my arm of an octopus. Um, Wait, putting the octopus to bed? Putting the octopus to bed. So this question of like, how do you bring, how do you end, right? What is the conclusion of the story? What, if any, resolution is offered, mm. right? And conclusion and resolution, not exactly the same thing. We say putting the octopus to bed because in fact, you never, the, the truthful, the truthful action is not to say, oh, and then I tied every single thing up with a bow. Oh my God, right? I love this Because that's so not much. how life is. That's not how, even if you're a fiction writer, like you, you're doing a bad job if you do that. Rather, you're trying to put an octopus to bed and there's always gonna be one of those tentacles that's coming out and like curling We're around so your neck or this. whatever. So, you know, what, you, what, what is resolved and what is not resolved at the conclusion of your story, right. you right. know, is you know sometimes bound by the facts, but also you know is is that is what imbues your choices as a writer and as a creative person. Mm -hmm. Like, what kind of resolution do you feel, or do you impose on that story? Right. Right. So, but my point is, this is such a generous act because people who have survived, you know, all the things that happened before prisoner jail and prisoner jail itself, or having a parent incarcerated, have a ton of really interesting, conflict-written, and important stories, but to provide a, a setting where you get the analytical skills to tell those stories better, in a more compelling way, in a way that connects with readers, and to be part of a community of writers that will affirm that, in fact, your stories are important and valid and interesting is an incredible gift, so mm. thank you for that. Totally, Marty's idea, we're just copying <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I want to this to not just be a one-time conversation. Uh -huh. I want to grow this in some way. So even if you're like flying home on the plane, you're like, oh, I, this they can do that. You know, send us emails. Mm -hmm. um, and if you guys want to start to queue up, we can take some yeah. uh, questions. Yeah, and I would, I would, uh, we've got a question over there, but I think you gotta come down. I, thought, I think you gotta be motivated. I'll tell a story while someone's coming down. Okay. Back to this question of sort of what is the function of story in our lives. Something very interesting to me that came across my radar in the last couple of years was the question of desistance. 
So desistance is when somebody stops doing a behavior that you, you know, that they don't want to do or that other people don't want them to do, right? So when someone desists from a harmful behavior, like you could actually say Piper desisted from being actively involved in crime on her own, but then she was held accountable for the crime later, right? So I did stop being involved in crime on my own with help. And so that's really what we want, right? So we talk a lot about recidivism in this country. Mm -hmm. Recidivism is not really a good measure. Recidivism is just like, oh, did you get caught doing something right. <laughs> you weren't supposed to do? As opposed to like, are you, were you actually able to transform your life mm. in an affirmative way? So the research on desistance, most of which has been done here in the US and also in the UK, shows strongly that narrative is an incredibly important component yes. in desistance. Yes. In other words, if you are gonna stop doing whatever that thing was that you wanna stop doing or that someone else wants you to stop doing, if you're gonna stop taking drugs, if you're gonna stop you know, being actively involved in organized crime, you know, any number of things that we might want people to desist from, you have to understand the story that you're carrying with you that attaches to that behavior, but you also have to develop a new story yeah. going forward. Yeah. And what the research on desistance shows is like you really need to like pretty consciously mm -hmm. like work on that story. Yeah. Right? Of what your life is going to be like going forward when you are no longer doing that thing anymore because you're a different person in a variety of ways. And your story going forward is a story that looks and sounds and is different. I and didn't so, know that was the name of it. Yeah. That's, a lot of people come to memoir class and they're right in the middle of their story. Mm -hmm. So in a way, they have to think of what the ending's going to be. Mm -hmm. So they're writing it, you know, they're changing their story as they go yeah. consciously. Yeah. That, I didn't know the name of it. You that. know, it seems really like the evidence is showing that when people don't, aren't given an opportunity to really work on that affirmative affirmative forward-looking story, it's much harder to desist, yeah. if you will. Okay. okay, questions? Thank you for coming and for your lovely book. I've spent a lot of time hearing people's stories doing psychological evaluations in immigration detention. Uh. And for one thing, that's a system that a lot of people are still not aware that people can spend Years, years in detention yeah. without even having a represent, legal representation unless right. someone volunteers. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things. One is I'm personally horrified by the financial aspects that these private prison systems are on the stock exchange mm -hmm. and are making lots of money mm -hmm. and for people who have investments uh, out of the slave labor that takes place. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of have a thing against private prisons, also from hearing people say, oh, this place is so much worse than where I was before. Mm -hmm. Until recently, I had someone say they were in county jail in San Diego, and it's so crowded at the moment that they had to have their showers wearing their clothes all the time because there was no room to even undress. And so when this person was transferred, to the detention center, they thought that was better. So I just wondered from the inside or from what you hear, what's your opinion about the private prison system, which is really a big de deal mm -hmm. here in the States. Yeah, so anyone who's a fan of the show probably knows what my opinion about private prisons are. <laughs> so we, uh, we, have a, we have a significant storyline in the show dealing with the rise of private prisons, which really does map, you know, 
the time of the creation and rise of private prisons really maps to mass incarceration. And that makes perfect sense, because when you build the biggest carceral state in human history, people draw benefit from it. And so the private prisons are perhaps the most crystallizing example of that kind of bad actor, right? A lot of people are not aware of the fact that there are, are even are private prisons in a lot, and my experience at least, is that with most people, when you're like, oh yeah, they're, they're private prison corporations that make money, uh, everyone's like, oh, that seems like a bad idea. Because <laughs> it creates a very obvious incentive to put people in prison. Um, yeah, so we know that private prisons are basically bad news um, and that they are politically active, right? They have been politically active for a long time in terms of making direct donations to politicians, but also they've been very politically active in terms of trying to shape immigration policy in this mm. country and very successfully of late, but also even, even prior. Um, it's wise to sort of, you know, private prisons are a really easily understood antagonist. When we think about like what kind of conflicts are we dealing with, you know, the person, you know, you know, person to person conflict, uh, you know, of a hero and a villain is the easiest to understand. And so that's sort of the one important thing about private prisons is like everyone can kind of wrap their head around them as a as a villain. But it's also important to recognize that there are far more entities that draw benefit out of the status quo. And that's true whether you're like Aramark, you know, you might eat their food at the stadium, but guess who's also eating their food? A uh, lot of prisoners. So like companies like Aramark, which is a food provider, contract, you know, in Ohio, they provide all of the food for all of the prisons, and it is not a pretty picture. Um, but we also start to drill down on it, and then you start to think about just the vast number of people who are employed in one way or another by the carceral state. And that starts to tell you why it's so hard for us to do rational things and make change, mm. because many people have a deep stake in the status quo. So that's what your question really brings up for Thank me. Thank you so, so much. So good question. Thank you. Hello. Hi. My question is more story related. Great. So you said um, in an earlier session that your mother-in-law's book club like peppered you with questions. Yes. So mine's more along those lines. Are you of, gonna like, pepper book me with club. questions like my mother-in-law's book club? <laughs> um, I wanted to note um, in the book you talked about um, you know just being miserable and having a moment where you've forgotten about the outside world. Mm, yeah. And coming here, I thought, oh, I wonder if she even remembers like being in prison, what that was like. Which you clearly do. You clearly do. But I also wanted to note that in the reading, um, I actually thought um, something that I found was interesting that it didn't seem like prison to me. You know, the scene by the lake and like you're in yoga class and they're painting your nails and I, what I enjoyed about it is how it, it, um, it took me to like this, a, a, different, um, a different place, a, like a more gentler place than it actually was. Mm -hmm. um, my question specifically is, um, have you heard from the prisoners that you were uh, in jail with mm -hmm. um, that have read the book or seen the show and do you hear from them and what's their response to it? Yeah, great question. So um, I just want to make a point before I answer that question, which is a good question. So one of the things that is so 
a fundamental challenge about talking about something like mass incarceration or frankly any human right, any situation in which human rights abuses are taking place, is this question of revealing, you know, shedding a spotlight on terrible, terrible things. And so, you know, some of the things that happen behind prison walls are, are horrific, you know. The human rights abuses are, shock, are truly shocking and not surprising, right? Mm -hmm. And I raise that point because I think there's an inherent issue about how human we view, how, how we view other people's humanity based on their survival of you know, the worst situations as opposed to the situations that are more ordinary and everyday. And so one of the things that I really wanted in the book was to focus on those moments of humanity mm. and the ways in which people respond to even a terrible situation by creatively devising a response to the dehumanizing situation that they find themselves in. Um, and that's easier on the systemic level where you know you're sort of like dehumanized and mechanized and you know as opposed to like when you're really being you know if you're being raped or abused in other work in other ways you know the most extreme kinds of trauma but it's a balancing act i think when you talk about many of these social justice questions of which aspects we want to hone in on the ordinary and the everyday or the most extreme because i think the truth of the matter is when i think about communications around prisons and jails is on a fundamental level in this country especially People expect them to be these brutalizing, awful places. So we can share these stories which are certainly shocking, but not surprising, because that's actually what people expect prisons and jails to be like, right? And so one of the things that was important to me was to tell stories and to reflect an existence that confronted that directly and was like, actually, people are human beings and they find all kinds of incredible ways to cling to their humanity, and that's yeah. what's really important. So to that point, um, yes, there's many women who are depicted in the book who I am still in touch with in one way or another. And so in some cases, you know, those are really deep friendships. You know, I spent spring break, you know, my family and a friend of mine from prison's family spent spring break together last year. And, you know, I know all her children and, and she knows mine. And then, you know, I have other friends, you know, some people just stay in touch via social media. Sometimes there's a, there's definitely a fair number of people who are in New York. So I see those women probably most frequently. Um, but people stay in touch one way or another. Um, I, in, a, in September, I was in Oklahoma for the, there's an annual conference. There's a national council of formerly incarcerated and incarcerated women and girls. And it was started by a woman who was incarcerated in the same prison that I was in. We were not there together. Um, it's a great organization. So there were a bunch of women who I was incarcerated with who were at the conference. It was great to see them. Um, lots of people have been in touch in one way or another. I have one friend who's like very important in the book. I haven't seen her in years now, but she always remembers my birthday. It's awesome. She texts me. That's generally, you know, every now and then she'll, she'll sporadically be like, hey, blah, blah, blah. But she always texts me on my birthday, and I love that. Um, so people generally, okay, I'll, I'll finish that, the answer to the question, do they like the book, do they not like the book? Pretty much across the board, of course I was nervous. Any of the memoirists here know that, like, you're nervous when people are reading a story that they're directly connected to and possibly even a character in. But, you know, the response to the book is really incredibly 
lovely and humbling and kind and, and very gratifying. There's one woman, Beatrice Codiani, who's like, you said I was needy, and I am not happy about that. And I'm like, but you are really needy, B. I mean, like, I say that with love. Like, <laughs> um, people have more mixed emotions about the show, and that is because the show relies much more heavily on humor. I mean, I think I have a sense of humor in the book, and I think, you know, but the book is not comic. The book is just laced with, you know, sort of my perspective on the world, which includes humor. But um, there are some people, either who were incarcerated with me or other women who just have been incarcerated, who have said to me, you know what, prison is incredibly traumatic, There's n and I, I cannot, I'm just not comfortable with the humor that is used in the show. And I think that's totally fair, right? Um, I also think that the humor is something that makes it possible for many viewers to like come to the show and contend with some of the difficult material that is in the show because it deals with aging in prison and you know sexual assault in prison and what how they tear apart families and a whole host of of issues and questions. So, but I totally respect that feedback from those women for sure. We don't uh, well, I'm sorry we don't have time question. for everything. We have another panel coming up. What's the difference between a memoir and an autobiography? I know we have some students in here. Autobiography tends to be your entire life, and a memoir might yes. just be a sliver or a section of your life. Yes. Does that make sense? It's that's like how, one piece of I the pie. The Before we say goodbye to Piper, we're, <laughs> we're giving her the award of Writer of the Year for all of the work that she does. Thank you so much, Piper oh Cummings. Thank you. That is beautiful.